Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. We have, we're in the book of Mark. You want to open up to Mark chapter 4, you can. We'll get there in just a little bit. We have made our way to a point in this telling of the gospel that Jesus begins to teach in parables. A couple weeks ago, Jared taught on the parable of the four soils. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. On You can go to our website, wearethecrossing.com. Uh, check that out there. You can also, if you go there, you can actually podcast and it'll send it to your phone automatically. So do that if you're missing Sundays. We want to keep you, as we're walking through a book of the Bible, we want to keep you up to date. But if, even if you don't, you probably heard the story. Even if you haven't, it's not going to mess you up too much today. But I do think that the, we're going to look at multiple parables that Jesus told this morning. And I do think that these are... Um, very much connected to that main parable of chapter 4, uh, this parable of the soils or the sower that, you, that we're going to uh, not talk about, we talked about, Jared did. Uh, but just to kind of give you an idea of what that parable is, if you've not known it, to refresh you, if you do not, there is this guy who sows seed. Jesus is telling the story of a man who's casting seed onto the ground. And there's Four different types of soil the seed lands on. So there's the hardened path. And in the hardened path, the seed can't take root. So it's stolen away by the enemy and, and the birds of the air steal it away. And, and then there's the rocky soil. And the rocky soil is got it's got room for roots to grow, but they can't go very deep. So it springs up and then the sun scorches it. So this is symbolic of life uh, circumstances being difficult and, and if your roots aren't deep in what's true then you're never going to grow to bear fruit and and so that plant withers and dies and then the, the third soil the thorny soil is where the the soil's there the roots go in but the weeds grow up and choke the life out of them that's that's our our idols the things in life that we choose over god that we would allow into our lives to choke the life out of what matters most and so none of those soils bear fruit. And fruit is evidence of salvation. Fruit is evidence of belief. So those soils, whether a plant grows or not, germination isn't the, the salvation. Fruit bearing is evidence. So those soils are fruitless. And there's only one, the fourth soil, the good soil that has been cultivated well and received the water necessary and the sunshine and brought health to it and it grew to produce fruit. And this soil Jesus says is a soil that not only has spiritual fruit, but has 30, 60, 100 fold the fruit. So it's, it's making disciples. It's growing in multiplication. It's exponential growth. And, and all of this is, is pointing us to the growth of the kingdom. All of this is about the kingdom of God. And, and it, it's going to continue to be about the kingdom of God. The parables we'll talk about today are about the kingdom of God connected to this First, when Jesus has taken his disciples aside, he's explained it. And here's what I'm talking about. He, and to the public, to the masses, he just told the story. And to his disciples, like I did for you, he explained what the things meant. And he continues to talk to them. And he continues to explain to them what this kingdom is all about. And so for us today, in this century, in this location, let's be encouraged to know the kingdom is for sure. God's kingdom will grow. There's hope in that the kingdom will grow. But, but there's, ne- there's, necess- there's a necessity for us to look closely at what our role in all of this really is. And so to sum all of that up, when the gospel is heard by believing ears, the seed grows in the good soil and produces fruit. And that fruit grows exponentially. And it, it's for those who don't believe, there's no fruit. In fact, there's nothing but death. And so before we get into today's text, let's consider ourselves and something that's probably obvious, but just to point it out anyway, uh, we see ourselves as missionaries to this culture. We want to be missionaries and missionaries see salvation. Missionaries make disciples. The success of a missionary is disciples being made, salvation being made. That's the, the common thought anyway. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And if we're honest and we need to be, we're not seeing a lot of that. We're seeing some life change, and that's good, but we're not seeing salvation. And so for me, if, if you're like me and you, you loathe the idea of becoming a church that's a country club, that just has members paying their dues and showing up, benefiting, I hate that. I want far from that. And churches become that because they fail at this mission. So if you're like me, this is 
This is bad news that we've not seen salvation. It's discouraging. And hopefully we find this morning that there is reason for hope. There is reason to be encouraged. And last week we spent some time talking about the winds. Because a way of dealing with this, this discouragement is considering the winds. We've had some winds as a church. Certainly it's been good. We can celebrate those things. We've been a church for two years. We've had missional communities as of April for two years. That's amazing. A lot of church plants, believe it or not, a lot of church plants don't survive two years. We've been worshiping in this building as of June this month for two years. That's awesome, right? It's exciting. We're still a church. There's still purpose. There's still life here. And we're on, we're on the growing end of things. There's many churches our size that are declining still. And so let's celebrate that God has given us this time together, even if it were, end, it were to end today. I would celebrate the time I've had with this, this body of believers. It's good. And we've seen this building itself take some, some change into the century. We're moving up the right direction. We, we're seeing this building that's been a gift to us being taken care of. It's looking good. It's a place that we can come at a very low cost to celebrate. And many are without those things. God has certainly blessed us. We've had new people, new families join us, new couples join us. We've had babies born, adopted, conceived. We've had engagements. We've had a marriage. We, we've rallied together in physical and, and emotional and spiritual difficulties. We've rallied together and held each other up as families should do. We've, we've been there for each other in ways that many church members don't have. I mean, many people who claim to be a member of a church in hard times, but no one's there for them. That doesn't exist here at the crossing. Let's celebrate that. And we've developed better understanding of what the gospel is, how it changes our lives, how we live every day free in the gospel with joy. We obey God's word, no longer bound by legalism. We've experienced new freedoms in the gospel and it's taking deep root and it's producing good spiritual fruit. We've not yet seen the exponential growth of disciples making disciples. But we've seen good fruit because of the work of the gospel in us. And we should absolutely celebrate those things so we can look at the winds and we can celebrate. But still, there's this glaring truth that disciples aren't being made. And so when we celebrate, let's recognize it's not an accomplishment of the crossing church But God has clearly been so gracious to us in our bumbling mistakes and the many things that we still have to fix. There's many things that we're we're lacking as a church in leadership and and skills and abilities and how we want to train parents to be disciple makers of the children and provide resources. How we want to rally the youth together to see what missional community life is and how we want to be on campus at ULM and Delta and, and and be existing in cultures around Monroe and be active in missional community mission. There's many things that we still need to improve on, but there's a lot to celebrate. And all that we have to celebrate is because we have a gracious Heavenly Father. And even this morning, as I'm, I feel like I'm behind in preparing this sermon, I want it to be more tight. I want things to be flow to flow better so I don't stumble over my words when I think of what I'm going to say next. And I'm thinking about all these things and I just stop and God, you're so gracious to give me this opportunity to proclaim truth. God, you're gracious to have me experience life and to, and to experience truth in my life that I could proclaim it as truth. And then this anxiety turns to an angst for God's people to see his word is true. The kingdom is for sure. Let's celebrate these good things because God has been so gracious. But we can't do so in a way that makes us comfortable We can't do so in a way that we're okay that there's no disciples being made. Because it's not okay. We work hard to make disciples. We see the blessings and it motivates us. We're, We're invigorated. We're challenged. We're pushed forward by God's grace to work hard for God's glory. And this isn't about, it never has been about, and it will never be about the crossing church. It's about the kingdom of God. So the growth we've seen... And numbers has been transferred growth. It's been not kingdom growth. It's been growth to the crossing, but it's just Christians joining our efforts. We want to see kingdom growth. We want to see lost people saved. And so we need to work hard in that effort. But what does it mean to work hard? Through an adjustment of our perspective 
I think we can see more clearly what God has intended for us as a church, what God has intended for Christians in the kingdom. And we can be encouraged by the word of God to work hard at making disciples. So let's look at Mark chapter 4 and starting at verse 21. I'm going to read to 34 and then we're going to just break it up and talk about it. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak without a parable, but privately to his disciples, he explained everything. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is truth and that we can hold it as truth. I pray that you would, would allow your spirit to reveal to us the meaning of this text that you would show us clearly what it means in this context and what it means in our context and how to apply it to our lives and live by this truth in a way that would glorify you in every way. God, strengthen me as I attempt to proclaim this truth. Let it be not me that's remembered, but you that is glorified and exalted in our hearts. As we leave this place, let us think on our big God in this big kingdom. And let us be overwhelmed and amazed in awe of the way you have included us in this kingdom. And work hard, not in anxiety, but in freedom, that we would work hard to make disciples. In Jesus' name. Alright, remember back in the beginning of Mark chapter 1. Jesus explained, or he began to preach on his, on his mission. He had one sermon. He said, repent. Believe the kingdom is at hand. And then he doesn't talk about the kingdom for a while. So it's not until now that we, Jesus stops and he explains, okay, here's what I was talking about when I said the kingdom way back when. The kingdom is everything. It's all about the kingdom. And he says, repent, believe the kingdom is at hand because you cannot be a part of this kingdom unless you repent and believe. It's the only sermon that matters. If you don't repent, you don't believe, you can't be a part of this kingdom. And the kingdom is everything. So remember when he preached on this, some rose against him, some opposed the things he was saying, some were curious, so they came along and he, they saw him do miracles to show his authority and his power. They started following, the crowds grew, the Pharisees grew against him, and they started calling him a, a sinner who hangs out with sinners. They started saying even his power is of the devil, and his preaching started to shift. And it was no longer as direct and as clear as repent and believe. And it became more like, all right, so there was this guy in a field throwing seeds out and it landed on different soil. He started using these parables to draw in those who would seek to understand. He took aside his true followers and he explained these things in detail. But to the masses, he only taught in parables. Some, some scholars disagree on this, but I believe that from this point on in his ministry to the masses, he only taught in parables. And only to his disciples did he take time to explain the meaning for the purpose of drawing in those who would believe to weed out those who aren't good soil. Because only those who are with good soil lean in. 
and come to him and, and ask for more and wonder what he's talking about. Everyone else, oh, that sounds good. And then the sun comes out and, and kills the plant. Or, yeah, I think I like that, but I think I like this more. And the plant dies. Everyone else turns away. But the good soil, the disciples, the true followers lean in and they're left, they leave the masses confused. And it's all, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it's all pointless. So the Holy Spirit has done this work within these people with good soil to cultivate the ground. And Jesus has taught this truth. And for us, on this side of the resurrection, we have the Spirit with us to show us what's true. And we're not left confused, but we can see this makes sense more than just words on a page. This, this word of God, the seed, the gospel is Jesus. And he brings life to everything. The greatest gift of grace that we have from God is our salvation. But salvation cannot happen without the word of God. Salvation cannot happen without the spirit enabling us to understand. So so that follows that truly the greatest gift of God is his word and the spirit that would give us understanding so that we can have salvation. But there are many who will hear the word and never believe because they don't have ears to hear. First Corinthians 2 14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We must have the spirit or this is foolishness. So we're dependent on the spirit. The word falls on good soil and we have life. But there's questions still like, what is he talking about? That's the question I ask when I read the parables. What can he possibly be saying here when he doesn't explain them? Okay, I kind of get it. But what is he talking about? Is this just going to be this small group of rejects? The, the masses have to think, okay, he's selected these. He's only explaining it to them. So it must just be about them. It's all, all of a sudden this exclusive club just for the close followers of Jesus. I'm not going to worry about it. What's going on? What's the point? What is this kingdom? And perhaps even the disciples had these thoughts. And because of that, Jesus draws them in and he says, you don't get it. Listen carefully. It seems like this is a small thing. It seems like there's things hidden still. But this is much bigger than you can even handle. So instead of telling you directly, let me tell you a story to help you understand. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen closely. Let me explain it like this. A lamp is meant to shine light. A seed will certainly grow to produce fruit. A mustard seed grows much larger than anyone would expect it to. And it's with these stories he explains this kingdom rather than just giving them a definition. Parables help weed out those who don't believe and provide clarity to those who do. In verses 21 through 25 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is still talking to them, the disciples. He often says, it often writes, or reads, he says to them, and he's talking to them, his disciples, those who have ears to hear. And in verse 23 and 24, it says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. So this pay attention, pay attention is literally in, in the Greek. It's literally translated. See what you hear. What? <laughs> See what you hear. There's can't do that. See what you hear. He's saying, lean in. Hear this in such a way that with your mind you see it. I'm going to tell you a story. I want you to visualize what you're hearing. I want you to see it. Pay attention. He's saying, seek to understand what I'm saying to you. Luke's telling of this. He writes, take care of what you hear. Don't just let it bounce off. Don't let it go through one ear and out the other. This story is just a story, but it has deep meaning. Lean in. And I believe this is a crucial point to all of this. Listen to what you're hearing. And this hearing has to have belief with it. And so I don't always do points, but we're going to have points today. Point number one, we, we are to hear with belief. We have to hear with belief. We're to see with our mind what we're hearing with our ears. And by the spirit, we will have understanding of what is hidden from the world. And if this is the case, it's no longer to be hidden. Verse 21, and he said to them, 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. All right, the lamp is meant to not be hidden. It's to shine light. It needs to shine light. It has a place in the house on a lampstand, which is like a shelf on a wall, or a, it's even cut into the wall. You put the lamp there, or a table in the room. You put the lamp there. It has to be higher to cast light. The lamp shows light. And these disciples know, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They know that the lamp is symbolic of God's word. And so when Jesus says, you put the lamp under a basket? You put it under the bed? No. You let it. It's not it's not a it's not a metaphor. It's not it's anything secretive. It's clear to them what he's talking about. It's it's not even a a question they have to answer. It's a rhetorical question that's answered in the negative. Are you going to put this lamp under a basket? No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I know some of you are thinking this. Just get it out of the way. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. All right. I'm glad we did that. So it's kind of like Christmas. And you buy a gift for Christmas. You wrap it nice. You put it under the tree. And it's hidden. All right. You don't. Whoever you bought it for doesn't know what's in the box. They know they have a gift. But it's not yet time for it to be revealed. So Jesus. There's this messianic. Uh, secret all throughout the book of Mark. Jesus is telling people as he heals them, don't tell anyone this. As he teaches truth, he says, don't go, don't go telling people about this. And even here, he's talking in parables and there's things hidden from them. There's this secret because it's not time for it to be revealed. There will be a time. Christmas Day is coming. I know this is the wrong holiday because it should be Easter is what we're talking about. But for the analogy, Christmas Day is coming and they'll get their gift. It's going to happen. But until then, there's, there's this necessity for there's, there to be some hidden things. There's mystery to it. For the disciples, hearing what they hear is good news, but it's not going to really take root until Jesus is resurrected. Until Jesus sends them out on mission. And for us, we get the Spirit. We know this truth and we are ready The secret is not secret to us anymore, but there's still some things that we need to figure out. There's still some things that we don't really understand. We're left with some questions like, why is no one getting saved? We're left with some questions like, how, what, when, what do we do to see people get saved? I'll do it. Just tell me what it is. But we can have hope that eventually... What is hidden will be seen. The kingdom of God will dispel every amount of darkness. Eventually, the world will be filled with the light of Christ. God will be the light of the new world. There will never be a tear, never be a moment of pain or suffering. Eventually, it will all be complete. And there's great hope in that. The mystery will be completely over. There's still this not yet understood part of the gospel for us. But what we do understand, we work hard in and what should be clear in this passage is where there's light, there need, it needs to shine. There should be no darkness. Where we are, there's darkness in Monroe. And we are lamps. We are light. And there should be shining in the darkness. This passage is clear that there's an innate obligation bound into the, the reception of truth. For there to be a proclamation of truth, an application of truth. It's, it's tied into it. If you believe, you will proclaim truth. If you're a lamp, you will shine light. It's not a question that has to be answered. Yes, lamps shine light. It can't be hidden. Darkness can't overtake light. It will happen. And so it's necessary that we see when we believe truth should come out of us. It should be the way we live our lives. It should be how we apply things. There will be fruit in the good soil and there will be light when there's a lamp. And so we, when we hear, we hear with belief. So what, what do we do next then? This lamp, not in a basket, our obedience 
follows. And when there's belief, our obedience follows. Is there, so there should be this automatic response of obedience because when we believe, we produce fruit. When we shine light, there's light everywhere around us. Blessings increase in our lives. God's going to provide you everything you need for this mission. And with those who, who don't believe, everything will be taken away. That's what verse 25 is talking about. For those who are, for to the ones who have, more will be given. And from the ones who have not, even what he has will be taken away. For, for those who believe God will give more. It's not a prosperity gospel sort of thing. God's going to give you everything you need for the mission. And every blessing we have, we turn it around and bless God. And use it for the proclamation of the gospel. And use it to apply truth to our life. Every blessing we have as a church. Every blessing we have as an individual is all about the kingdom. It's not about us. We enjoy them. We, we celebrate them. But it's all about Jesus. And now Jesus is telling his disciples that, that they've been given light to shine light. Your lamp so that you can shine light. Even if they don't really understand this fully right now, they know the instruction is clear. If you believe, you'll share it. It's not a command. It's just how it works. And then the result of it is we are compelled by the love of Christ. We're controlled by the love of Christ to obey what we believe. So we hear this belief. And point two, we hear with obedience. We hear with belief and we hear with obedience. This is done totally dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot obey without the Holy Spirit. So in our justification, we need the Spirit. In our sanctification, we need the Spirit. In order to obey, we're dependent on the Spirit of God. And he illustrates this with the parable of the growing seed. Verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this is you can see some similarities with the parable of the sower because there's a seed involved. But this it takes on a different perspective because the parable of the sower is clearly emphasizing the soil. And it, it's all about the soil. What is the soil? It's the heart of man. And it means these different things. So there's this resistance to the growth of the seed. And there's this focus on the wrong things that damages the growth of the seed. And there's, there's good soil. And it's all about the soil. The parable of this growing seed is not about the soil. The parable of the growing seed is about the growth of the seed. And it's certainly going to come to harvest. Where before there, there were ones that didn't produce fruit. Now this one's going to produce fruit. It's definitely going to happen. So what is, what's imperative here is that we see it's still about sowing seed for us. The act of the individual in this parable is the, man, the farmer planting a seed. So we hear and we believe and we obey. It's really a simple story. There's, there's not anyone here who doesn't get what he's saying. The farmer plants a seed and then he goes to bed. That's all there is to it. And, and besides cultivating the soil before or irrigating things to make sure it gets water, he can do nothing but wait for the harvest. He can't make fruit appear. He can't make the sprout spring up. All he can do is wait. So he plays the role of planting a seed. And that's it. And that's the point of the story. Salvation, the reign of God over the hearts of people that we desperately desire to be saved. The reign of God over the hearts of all his people is totally out of our control. The farmer plants the seed and then he goes home and goes to bed. I kind of like that. Anybody else like that? That's something I can do. This is freedom. There's freedom in this. Salvation is a supernatural and automatic thing we're not necessary for. Verse 28 says it produces crops by itself. The earth produces crop by itself. It's automatic. In fact, this, the Greek word used for this phrase is what we get our word automatic from. It does it by itself. You just plant the seed. 
God grows the seed. We're not in control of it. Something significant happens between the sowing and the harvest. And this mysterious, supernatural, beautiful thing is salvation. And it's totally out of our control. The sower can take an account of the growth. It says the first first comes up the blade in the ear, then the full grain in the ear. He can take an account of what's happening, but he can't make it happen. But he does understand God's making it happen, though he doesn't understand how it happens. His primary and ultimate interest doesn't even seem to be how it's growing. He's just making an observation. His primary and ultimate interest is the purpose for which the seed was put in the ground. Harvest. He steps back. He, t- he goes to bed. He goes about his life day and night until harvest comes. And by the grace of God, listen, by the grace of God, we get to participate in the harvest. The best part of it all. We get to join into the harvest. Verse 29, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. The process here is clear. God provides the seed. The disciple sows the seed. God grows the crop. And he allows us to participate in the harvest. And the harvest is for sure. The kingdom will certainly grow. Salvation will certainly happen. When we plant the seed. But God's in complete control of it. This lack of control that we have in the situation shouldn't cause anxiety in us. Because we want so desperately. And I feel this. Like I want desperately for some of my family members, for friends to be saved. I want this. I want there to be clarity and freedom in the gospel for everyone I meet. I feel the weight of that. But I have to trust God fully with it because he's in control and my submission to his control gives me the freedom to faithfully and consistently without being discouraged continue to cast the seed of the gospel to to continue to proclaim truth of the gospel so that God could grow and produce fruit and allow me to be a part of that harvest. But instead I get discouraged and so I just stop. It's not working. Well, it's not in my control. I can't make it happen. My role in this is clear. Cast the seed. Why am I not casting the seed? It's so simple. I love it. Why am I not doing it? Because I have the wrong perspective in all of this. And I think my efforts, our church, our method is going to save people. That's so far from what Jesus is telling his disciples here. It's so far from the way we function as people in a society that says my work is going to produce the fruit. And it's just not true. Human effort and even our understanding is powerless. God has the power to save. And the kingdom of God comes mysteriously by God's initiative, by God's appointment, by God's timing, without human intervention. And point three, we're left to hear with trust. We hear the truth. We proclaim the truth because we hear it with belief and we trust Him. And I struggled to figure out what word to put here because trust fits, but I also could have said with humble confidence because it's not about us. We're confident in God though. Or with surrender to God because He's in control and we know He's in control. We hear with surrender. We hear with submission to His will, submission to His ways, trusting that He's going to accomplish all that He said He was going to accomplish. And the seed of the gospel, the word of Christ, the person of Jesus, the kingdom of our Lord, the growth of this seed, the fruit it will produce, the power by which people are saved and the fruit is ripened is all totally in His control and I trust Him with it. And it's going to be evident in how I live my life. And we are to continue to sow the seed faithfully, trusting Him always. And all we can do, all we can do is share the truth. And if we believe the truth, we will share the truth. And all we can do is plant the seed and shine the light and trust God. And God will add to the numbers. That's Acts 2, 47. God will bring increase. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 7. It says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
That's Paul explaining to the people. It's not about Apollos and his great teachings. It's not about me and making disciples. It's about Jesus. It's all about God. He gives the growth. God gives the right to become his children, not us. That's John 1.12. God begins what he says he's going to begin, and he is faithful to bring it to completion. That's Philippians 1.6. It's all over Scripture. God will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. He will grow the kingdom. Relax. He's got it. It doesn't rise or fall on us, but we are free to make disciples because of this truth. How wonderful is this news? How amazing is this grace? This means there's no need for us to use our evangelism evangelism as a marketing scheme. There's no need for us to manipulate people and try to convince them logically to believe what we believe. There's no need for us to, to stress out because we're anxious for our, our coworkers and our children and our friends. There's no reason for you to be overwhelmed by stress, but instead let it push you to pray for their salvation because only God's going to grow it. Let it push you to be desperate for it in a way that you pray harder, in a way that you love better, in a way that you serve more, in a way that you sacrifice of yourself, in a way that you see God has blessed you with everything you need to bring the gospel to a people who desperately need the gospel. Sow the seed of truth. That's our role. And God will bring the growth because the kingdom will certainly grow. There's no pressure There's only this necessity to shine light and cast the seed. But if you truly believe you're going to do that, mysteriously yet irresistibly, this proclamation of Jesus certainly brings about kingdom growth. It's not going to return void. There there is no barren soil. It's all fertile. Every soil that's going to produce fruit is fertile. But we have no idea where that soil is. So we cast the seed far and wide and everywhere we can. We continue to proclaim truth and we trust God. In this context, when compared to the mega power that Rome is or the kingdoms of earth, the kingdoms the world has seen, this motley crew of vagabonds seems very insignificant. These homeless guys roaming around with this man who's now crazy, just talking in parables all the time, seems incredibly insignificant. And so there's got to be these questions of what, where is this headed? Like, What's going to happen from here? This is just something very small. You're talking about big things. How is this possible? And of course, Jesus knows this as he knows everything. And so he tells this parable of a mustard seed in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? I love that he asks the question. Okay, so what can we compare the kingdom of God to? What what parable can we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of earth. Now, it's not literally the smallest, but in their gardens, in in the Middle East, in the gardens, this is the smallest thing they're going to plant. This tiny seed about the size of a mustard seed. It's literally the size of a mustard seed. It's about the size of a grain of sand, maybe even a little smaller, depending on the species of mustard plant. So, so the small, it's proverbial, the smallest seed. They know it to mean something small. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in the shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them and they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them, that is the crowd now. He didn't speak to the crowd without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So it's interesting to me that he asked, the kingdom of God is like, what can we compare it to? Instead of just saying the kingdom of God is blank, he, he always says the kingdom of God is like. Instead of just defining it, here's the definition of the kingdom of God. Clearly, Instead, he, he says it's like this. And I, I think it's interesting because like we know the parables are for to draw people in. But also there's this beauty to story. There's this beauty to the story of it all. If, if Narnia could be explained in one sentence, C.S. Lewis would have done that. But instead he wrote several books because the story is the adventure. It's about the story of it all. It's beautiful and it takes us somewhere. And so he's saying, picture in your mind the story so you can get a better idea what the kingdom is instead of, here's the definition of the kingdom. 
It's, it's a beautiful thing that he's doing here. And, and as they were able to hear it, so he does it in a way that they understand it. He wants them to know what the kingdom is. And so he's doing it in a way that they can see it. Verse 34, privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So anything that wasn't clear, he took the time to explain it because he wants them to see how valuable this kingdom is. Back to verse 30, he says, what can we compare the kingdom to? So the focus shifts again. He's talking about a seed, but the focus shifts again. It's not about the sower. It's not about the soils. It's not about the growth. It's not even about the fruit this time. It's only about the contrast between small and big. His point is the proverbial tiny mustard seed is small and seemingly insignificant. And it becomes the biggest of the garden plants. Now, I did a lot of research on mustard plants. Thought it would help me. It did a little bit, I guess. But a a mustard plant comes in many species. Some of them are are even like parasites. Like they take over fields. They climb over things. They they become, they make big branches. But it's really like this twining of tiny branches that make bigger branches. But this, this particular species is likely one that grew maybe 12 feet high, 3 to 6 feet wide. So they're pretty big. But it's not the biggest thing. The the cypress of Lebanon, or the, sorry, the cedar of Lebanon, Lebanon, I can't say you didn't right. The cedar of Lebanon is a bigger tree that they know about. There's not a lot of big plants in this area of the world, but he points to the garden because they know the garden well. They, they till their gardens, they work in their gardens, they know the, the mustard seed. Later, there was laws against planting mustard seed in the gardens because of the way they grew and overtook gardens and the way it would attract birds of the air. And it would mess with the other plants in the garden. Not everywhere, but some places they had laws against it. And so it's an herb. And then we use mustard today. And the seed is tiny, but it grows in these flowers and these bushes. It's a shrub. It's a big shrub. And so they're seeing this picture of tiny mustard seed. Big shrub. No one would expect this big shrub from a tiny mustard seed. Maybe it helps us more to consider... The redwoods, because we know they're massive. And from this little pine nut out of a pine cone, this tiny thing, we can get a tree that's easily 300 feet. Many taller than that. 300 feet, 30 stories. We don't even have a building in our city that big. These trees growing 300 feet from a seed. This is amazing, but it's so normative to us that we don't even think it's a big deal. And 30 feet wide. I was going to bring a tape measure to see. I don't even think this is 30 feet. 30 feet. 300 feet. A tree from a seed. It's incredible. Let's just stop and see. This is incredible. From small to big. This is built into nature. God built it into nature for us to see this pattern of things. Like even human beings from... From the tiniest thing in our mother's wombs to, to the most powerful and influential and admirable people ever. We all came from these tiny things, born into a world vulnerable and naked and helpless, and there's nothing we can do for ourselves. And we grow to be self-sustaining, we grow to be intelligent and funny, we grow to be people that people want to be around, people want to be like. We have personality that's different from everyone in the room. We look different from everyone in the room. This is incredible. This growth that God has put into the world is from tiny to large. And he's making this point. He's illustrating this thing to these disciples. God has built it into our very natures to see that we hear with faithfulness. Because what is small will certainly be bigger. We're faithful to the mission no matter how small it seems. Because what is small will certainly grow to be bigger. The point is the establishment of the kingdom may seem insignificant and fragile at the time, in the beginning. But there will be a day to come when the kingdom will surpass all the kingdoms of the earth. There will be a day where it's larger and more powerful and it crushes all else. It's sure to come. This astonishing thing is as if we're looking at a mustard seed and considering that it's going to overtake the garden. I find it encouraging 
to know that even in our small beginnings as the Crossing Church, we're part of something so much bigger. Even in the things that we desire to see, we're part of something so much bigger that may not happen in our lifetime. We may not see salvation, but we're part of something that's so much bigger than that. I beg God to save the lost. I beg Him to use us for the harvest. I want to be a part of that harvest. But even if He doesn't, I'm going to hear His Word and faithfully follow because I believe it. And I will be obedient. And I will trust Him to grow the plant. And I will be faithful to what He's called me to. And I will cast aside everything that would slow me down. Because there's something certain. Harvest will come. The kingdom will grow. I'm encouraged by those who've gone long before us. So as we come to an end, I want to use an illustration of just pointing to some men in history, some missionaries. We see ourselves as missionaries, so let's look at missionaries and let's consider some other missionaries. Samuel Zwimmer, also known as the Apostle to Islam. After 38 years of mission work, 38 years of his life committed to mission work in, in Arabia and in the Persian Gulf and Egypt and Asia Minor. 38 years, fewer than a dozen converts. Yet producing converts was never his ultimate goal. And he said, beautifully, he wrote, the chief end of missions is not the salvation of men, but the glory of God. He found strength to commit himself to years and decades of this ministry with 12, fewer than 12 converts because he sought so much bigger than his mission, than him. William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, with no support from his family, left England with his wife and moved to India to reach the unreached people of India. And he labored there for seven years before seeing a single person saved. Seven years at work, he didn't see anyone come to know the Lord. And 19 years of working on a translation of the Bible for these people, his house burned down and all of his work was gone. And in, and in that moment, instead of thinking it was all a waste, his response was, in one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. Also, his wife died. And so he remarried and his second wife died. And he was injured in an accident and lost the use of his legs. But never once did he return home. He continued on the mission. He shared the gospel faithfully in India for 41 years with visible fruit for his labor at a minimum. Yet towards the end of his life, he said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless God upheld me. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathens here were thousands of times stronger, and the example of the Europeans before me were thousands of times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the word of God, the sure word, would rise about all the obstacles and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. The future is, a bright, is as bright as the promise of God. We should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Adoniram Judson, the father of the American Baptist Mission, he labored in Burma, now Myanmar. He labored in Burma for seven years also before seeing a single convert. And Judson led around 25 Burmese to the Lord in his 40 years of mission. And, and perhaps only 10 of those were actual converts and displayed fruit, living lives faithful to Christ. 10 in 40 years. Over this time period, he also buried two wives, six children, 11 co-workers. He died disappointed 
with his labors producing so little gospel fruit. Yet like Carrie, he was faithful to the very end and he could voice these words in a poem. In spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain and reap on Zion's hill. It's not, it's not necessarily true, though we would desperately want it to be true, that we will reap a harvest here. But God is faithful. And the lost will be saved. Salvation will come. It's totally out of, our, out of our hands. We plow forward. We move onward. Because we know our God is faithful. We consider many saints who have gone before us. Devoted their lives to this mission that we share in. We see Jesus glorified in it all. Because it's all about the glory of God. It's all about the kingdom growth. And we ask ourselves simple questions. Are we truly committed to this mission? No matter the results before us. What sacrifices are we willing to make to see the kingdom grow? Even if we don't see the results. Do we believe God can accomplish these miraculous things such as salvation? With a lamp and a mustard seed. Are we willing to toil day after day? And fight this good fight. Are we willing to go after the loss and make disciples and see limited results so that God can raise up millions of believers, maybe decades, maybe centuries from now? We know the truth. We hear the truth proclaimed, but we have to lean in. And we have to hear it. We must hear it with belief. We must hear it with obedience. We must hear it with truth and trust in the truth. And we must hear it faithful to the very end. God, I thank you so much that we are in this together. I thank you that we have one another and we have the spirit to reveal to us what is true. Thank you that the simplicity of the mission is before us to sow seeds, to plant the seed, to trust you to grow it. Father, make us faithful even when we, when, when we don't feel like it, even when we don't see results. Let us see that you're faithful even when we're not. Let us see that you know what you're doing even when we don't know what we're doing. Bring us together, unify us more around this mission because it's all about the kingdom. Praise you, Father. Let us be encouraged by your word as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.